Well, Philippians chapter 3, and you can find your way over to verse 17 is where we'll be looking in the section for us this morning. Can you imagine going to a sporting event where both teams wear the same jerseys? They uh, decide that they all want to look alike. They all want to kind of just be the same. They don't like this, we're different, you're them, we're us, this is terrible, let's all just get along and uh, play the game, but we're going to have the same jerseys on. You can imagine that wouldn't work very well. Just pick whatever sport you want. It would be kind of uh, chaos in some ways, right? You'd have the ball getting passed to the wrong people. If it's football, wrong people getting blocked or tackled. It would be, can you imagine trying to be an announcer on that kind of game? Uh, trying to keep everything straight. It would, be, it would be confusing. It would be frustrating both for those doing the game as well as those who were watching the game. We need to be able to clearly identify who is on your team so that you can accomplish the goal of the game. Well, the same is true for life in having proper understanding of ourselves as Christians. How are we to determine who Christians truly are? How are we to discern who Christians are when anyone can claim to be a Christian? Anyone might say, ah, I'm a Christian. I'll just put on the jersey and call myself a Christian. In the text for us today, the Apostle Paul draws some sharp and distinct boundaries around who true Christians are. And it seems that some in the church, at this, when he was writing us in this present moment, when he, when he was writing this, were offering up a different kind of so-called Christianity. A Christianity that was sidestepping the ethical requirements of what it means to be a child of God and the radical transformations that God accomplishes in a life when a person comes to faith in Christ. And so Paul is laying out some very sharp boundaries around who are Christians as they try to understand how to live out the Christian faith in a Greco-Roman world, in a pagan society. What do Christians actually look like? Who are Christians really? And we find that question beginning back in verse 16, where he tells them to uh, hold true to what you have attained. He wants them to hold true to their spiritual growth and the maturity that God has given them so far. And don't cast that aside by living a life that says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, I can call myself a Christian and then live however I'd like. He says, hold true to what you have attained. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to hold true? What examples might those Christians follow to know what it looks like to hold true to the Christian faith expressed in a life in a pagan society? Well, the answer to that is found as you look in verse 17 and following when he says, brothers, it's actually, uh, ladies, if that uh, ever kind of hits you sideways in the sense of why is he only talking to men there, he's not. That's a colloquial phrase that would have been like, hey, y'all, everyone, brothers and sisters, he's talking to the whole church family, He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there were different examples that were being passed in front of those Christians in Philippi. Some were being drawn after these other examples. And Paul wants to make sure that they don't get pulled aside in those errant, heretical, false examples of of false Christianity. He says, I want you to follow and imitate the example that you see in us, follow after that. And he asked them to join, which, by the way, is something that's communal. Okay, this is something we all do as Christians together. This isn't just an individual thing that you have to do, yes, but he's writing to a church family saying, hey, I want this church family to join in following and imitating the example that you've been given in his life. And so the example that he calls us readers to follow is the example of true Christians set forth in his life and example. Well, what does that look like? 
I mean, we don't have the Apostle Paul for us right now, do we? We can't you know, roll some you know, beef footage, some documentary footage, and say, let's examine how he lived. But we do have God's Word. And so the answer to the example that he's calling those Christians to follow is the example that's recorded in Philippians. If you want to know what true Christianity looks like, read Philippians and look at the calls to how a, how a person is supposed to think and how a person is supposed to live, and that's what he's calling them to. So, for instance, a quick summary would be true Christianity looks like being focused on the advance of the gospel. That's chapter 1. Having a life centered on Christ. Whether you live or die, having a life centered on Christ, that's true Christianity. Or to continue on in chapter 2, it means being of the same mind, having the same love with other Christians, not doing things from selfish ambition or conceit. That's true Christianity. But in humility, counting others more significant than yourself. That's an expression of true Christianity. This is what he's calling his readers to follow after and imitate. So then, it means as you look beyond in chapter 2 and then you can continue to read, it means doing things without grumbling or disputing. So does it bother you, though, that Paul would say, hey, follow me? Does it seem a little bit kind of conceited, as if maybe he's a little inflated with his own sense of well-being as a Christian, as a model, as an example? Well, the reason that isn't the case is because the ultimate example that Paul followed, you can find in chapter 2, and uh, you'll remember this back in chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, 5, 6, and following, the example that he centers his life around imitating is the example of Jesus Christ, the true trendsetter of the Christian faith. Christ is the one who has this mind that he's given to Christians, um, a mind that is one of, of humility and service and sacrifice and trust in God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth to imitate him, but then he adds this little qualifying phrase. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's the spirit of what Paul is getting at here in Philippians chapter 3, when he says, Now I want you to join in imitating me, inasmuch as he is an imitator of Christ. Well, here's what this means then. It means that you don't have to be an apostle to invite people and, and, and to live out the admonition of this text, to live a life that you could say, by God's grace, follow me, imitate me, follow the pattern and the example that my life is setting. You don't need to be an apostle to say that. You do need to have a life that is centered on Christ and following Christ's example. And so I would like to encourage us to do some personal examination. If someone were to imitate your life, your general walk of life, your general lifestyle, how you order your life. You get the idea? Would they be more like Jesus? That's the burden of this text. That's the example that Paul is calling them to follow, that he is modeling by God's grace and the same call that all of God's people should be joining together in imitating so that we might be encouraged to follow Christ as we see glimpses and, and, and reflections of Jesus in one another's life as we follow him. Perfectly, no. See, none of us can be Jesus to each other. That's not what we're called to do, to be Jesus. We are called to imitate and reflect, encourage, remind. And so I'd like for us to give ourselves some personal examination. I'd say, well, that's just kind of for pastors, for ministry leaders. Yes, ministry leaders are... are called to be an example, yes. But do you understand how in the scriptures all of those calls are really for ordinary Christians? 
This is something that God has an expectation on all Christians to do, which, by the way, we can do because chapter 2 says you have this mind, this mind of Christ. It's been given to you through faith in Christ. So what's the alternative? Well, Paul provides that in verses 18 and 19. When he talks about many of whom I have often told, I mean, why does he have to call them to imitate this particular example? Because many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 18. Paul begins this description by flatly stating in verse 19 that their end is destruction. And that's going to be sharply contrasted with the outcome for those who are true Christians down in verse 21 when he says true Christians are people who are looking forward to the arrival of Jesus and Jesus is going to bring with him a glorious new body for all of his people so that we might enjoy him forever. I mean, those two, those two ends are, are, are diametrically different. And I wonder if Paul is highlighting this new glorious body in talking about the destruction that is destined for those who are enemies of the cross because the people who are enemies of the cross, he goes on to describe them as people who it seems are abusing and giving themselves as slaves to the sinful appetites of their earthly bodies. I mean, do you see that there? They're engaged in shameful living, right? Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame, verse 19. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Those are all words describing people who are, it seems that it was probably this heresy of saying that, hey, because I'm a Christian and, and God is spirit and now I, now I have God's spirit, what happens in the body, what I do in the body doesn't matter. And so I can live however I'd like. I can give myself to bodily appetites and still be okay kind of in my spirit before God. And Paul is saying, no, that is wrong. The people who are enemies of the cross, they live this way. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That idea of shame is used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about sexual perversions and abuses. In, Ephesians, in Romans 1, it's used that way. In Ephesians 5, we are told, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Why? For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Paul keeps calling out the paganness of their society around them and saying, Christians have been redeemed from this. We follow a different example. We've been transformed and changed by the gospel. And enemies, enemies of the cross exalt and celebrate what should cause them shame. Why? Because, verse 19, their minds are set on earthly things. Now, it's easy for us to hear this and go, well, I'm glad that's none of us. I mean, we're the church people. Here we sit on a Sunday morning. You know, we're, we're all right. Well, by the way, um, what's startling here. Um, well, let me, let me just take a moment and just mention something about this mindset on earthly things. That topic is described in further detail in Romans 8. And in Romans 8, we are told to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Those are the differences between everyone in the world. Non-Christians are people who set their mind on the flesh. Christians are people who set the mind on the spirit. That is the description in Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And so what Romans is teaching us is that Christians are people who by the power of God, by his spirit indwelling them, have been delivered from the tyranny of always having their minds set on earthly things. 
It doesn't mean a Christian can't have a mind that is set on earthly things from time to time and God is removing that from us little by little. That's called progressive sanctification, being changed incrementally from where we were to where God is taking us into glory. But it does mean that we won't only be earthly minded. Everything about these enemies of the cross of Christ seems like it's kind of us versus them, right? Those are unbelievers, outsiders, not people in the church. But what's startling here is that Paul says in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. That phrase is not describing pagan unbelievers that refuse and are not gathered with the church. It seems that Paul is actually referring here to people who called themselves Christians. Likely people that were gathering with the church in Philippi, and he's referring to people that are self-identified as Christians but were living in this aberrant way, in this non-gospel way. And Paul is heartbroken about this. Do you see that? He has tears because they are walking as enemies of the cross. So what are we to do with this? Well, to begin with, it means this. that just It means someone is not a Christian just because they say so. The Bible is very clear that there will be evidence of true salvation. There will be fruit. A life will express fruit in, in word, in action, in attitude that will bear witness and testify to the authenticity of the claim of somebody saying that they are a Christian, that they are a child of God. They are born of the Spirit of God. Now, our world does not like to live in those kind of binary absolutes. But this is how the Scriptures teach it. And this is something that we all must square up with. Whether you, whatever your background is, I'm not trying to cast doubt at anyone's faith in Christ. All I'm trying to do is just say that we live in a world that says, if you want to be that, just say you are that, then you will be that. That's the kind of world we live in. And it's easy for those pressures to press in then on our Christian mindset to where we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're all right. We can come and kind of go through religious observance, religious practices, check that card off, appease our conscience, feel good, kind of, we've done our kind of penance, we've kind of done our part. But if there's no true regeneration of repentant faith, transformation of repentant faith, of embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior, as your, all of your hope in this world and in the world to come, then you are not a Christian. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 7, beware of false prophets. Prophets, people that said, thus saith the Lord, I have a word from the Lord. Listen to the word of God from my mouth. I mean, these were religious people, but they're false. How do you know that? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Their God is their belly, Philippians 3, right? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree, every person that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Paul provides another sharp contrast in verse 20. Which, by the way, what type of fruit is your life producing? Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Gospel. The fruit of grace. 
or is it not? Another sharp contrast in verse 20 that you find here is that he, he, wants to like, he wants to be sure his readers don't think that this is a fuzzy thing to figure out, right? You either have that team jersey on or you don't. The differences are clear, which means you're not kind of a Christian or somewhat a Christian or mostly a Christian. You either are or you aren't. So think of it this way. He goes in verse 20 and he calls up this, but our citizenship, that word but is a contrast, in contrast to the, the earthly-minded citizenship that's expressed through their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, He says, but our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. So think of what it means then to be a citizen of the United States. It means that you have certain rights and privileges and responsibilities. Citizenship is a classification. It's a legal status. There is a certainty about it. You are either a U.S. citizen or you aren't. So another legal status kind of thing would be like getting married. The bride and groom walk into the wedding unmarried and they walk out of the wedding married. There's no middle ground. So again, what about you? Are you a citizen of heaven? The message of Christianity is this wonderful story about how God makes sinners into citizens of his kingdom through the gracious gift of forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And just like you need a legal authority to... to, to um, declare your status as a citizen of that country. You can't make yourself a, 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 a citizen of a country just because you want to. So it is with becoming a Christian. God makes you a Christian when you turn from your rejection of him and abandon all efforts of self-salvation. And you receive in humble faith his gift of Christ as your substitute so that you now stand before God complete in the righteousness that Jesus gives you in the forgiveness that Jesus gives you, nothing that you earn. And so just like a country would give you a passport, and as the proof, so God gives you Jesus' righteousness as the proof that you are his citizen. Does that describe you? Is that the example that you are imitating? Is this the reality that you live in? Is this the status that preoccupies who you are as you live and work and play in this world? If not, why not? So be warned. Again, verse 19, the outcome of those who are enemies of the cross is destruction. And that destruction, the Bible describes in other places as eternal condemnation for rejecting the gift of Jesus as Savior. And so this theme of citizenship is something that Paul continues to, is important for uh, the understanding of these Christians in Philippi living out the, the gospel in their pagan world. When he says, live, but we are citizens of, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Christians should be living their life here on earth on the basis of the politics of heaven. Have you ever thought about that? The politics of heaven? You're like, oh, you just ruined heaven. There's politics there? (laughs) They're glorious. They're glorious. It's the politics of those who think that they're going to be first will be last and those that were last will be first. And the idea of, I used to always think that this was kind of like, you know, the, I know every, every grown man is a kid in heart, right? But I, I kind of think like you're standing in line for recess and you want to get out there and, and you're just upset because you're kind of in the back of the line. And it's like, man, I kind of want to get to heaven so I can be in the front of the line. That's not what we're talking about. It's the idea of this world elevates and makes people a big deal because they sell whatever, makeup or because they, they do whatever. You know, they're influencers and people follow them because they got 
I'm, I'm picking on makeup and, and fingernails. I don't know why, but um, but you understand. I mean, it's our, our world celebrates the, just the absurdity, the, the vacuousness of what, and they, and they pay them millions and billions of dollars for what? They're first, and you've got humble servants who are taking the gospel to unreached people, who are suffering, who are sacrificing, who our world thinks are idiots because they're letting the world slip through their fingers and missing out on the good life. And yet, the politics of heaven are this. They'll be first. And the ones that think they're first will be last. That's just one example of the glory of the politics of heaven. So there's the politics there. And Paul is saying, Christians in Philippi, you need to live in accordance to the politics of heaven, not the politics of your Greek and Roman society. Now, here's why this makes sense. Paul is talking about the citizenship idea because in his Greco Roman society of that day, you had something called city-states. And city-states were these, well, it was a city, but it was kind of like a mini-nation. And if you were a citizen of that city, you were bound by and protected by the laws and privileges and the rights of citizens of that city, no matter where you were or traveled in the Roman Empire. So, for example, you could be a citizen of Rome, or a citizen of Corinth, different city-states, and they had different rights and privileges that went with them. And no matter where you went, you were a citizen of that place, and you carried with you the rights and privileges of that state in the Roman Empire. And Paul actually invoked this, if you read in Acts, he was jailed in Philippi, he was beaten and jailed, and he's, he's put in prison without a trial, and that was one of the rights that went with his legal status of being a citizen of Rome. He had, a, he, was, he, was a, he had the citizenship of Rome. And the politics of Rome meant that you couldn't be thrown in jail, you couldn't be beaten and, ha- and do that until you had a trial and were found guilty. And that happened to Paul in Philippi. He was beaten, then imprisoned without a trial, and when they went to release Paul and his ministry partner Silas, I'll read this to you from Acts 16. I think I have it on screen here too. He says, when it was day, okay, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Right? But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are, here it is, Roman citizens, and have thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No! You can just hear his incense. He's a citizen of Rome. No, let them come themselves and take us out. I want an escort. Because they have abused, they have... They have um, Uh, What's the word? They have not honored his right as a Roman citizen. Now look at the response. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid. They're afraid of the prisoner. They're afraid. Uh, And when they heard that, they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, right? Please don't get us in trouble. Please don't file charge. They're trying to assuage them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Just get out of here. That's one of the functions there of the politics of being a Roman citizen worked out in the, in the historical context of when this was of Philippi and Paul being there. So now, Paul wants his readers to remember that they are primarily citizens of heaven. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It meant that if you were a citizen of Philippi, that you had the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen, which is, by the way, a high honor because there was another occasion where Paul is imprisoned. He's in Jerusalem. He's at a Roman tribunal, and he tells, uh, he's, getting, he's getting stretched up on the rack to be beaten, and he tells the guy who's, who's lashing him to this rack, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And, the, and they're like, what? 
and they release them, and they say, how is that? The the, uh, centurion said, I had to pay to become a Roman citizen, and Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. This is something that would have been um, kind of patriotically a pride for, for citizens of Philippi. They had Roman citizenship as a colony of Rome. And Paul is saying, here is what should preoccupy you as imitators of Jesus, that your citizenship is in heaven. Heaven. And that should radically transform, then, how we live and work and play and interact in this world. That is one of the ways that we will, we will let the gospel reverberate out of us as a church family into our communities and neighborhoods as we interact and think and are preoccupied with a conscious awareness not a mindset on earthly things. That's enemies of the cross. We are citizens of heaven. Now, there are many, many privileges that go with being a citizen of heaven. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Read through some of the Gospels when he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and just relish the fact that you get to be a citizen of that kingdom. This kingdom, read about it in Revelation, that Jesus is going to bring with him and how it's described, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow. That's the kingdom. That's the citizen. That's where your citizenship is. I know you're, you're, you're longing to experience that, right? We all have passports saying, oh, come Jesus, please. Now, there's many privileges that Paul called attention to a couple. He says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, what privilege does he want his readers to think of in this immediate moment? Here's one of the privileges. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are citizens of heaven, we get to look forward to something the rest of the world does not. The coming of Jesus. He is coming. Our king is returning. We get to look forward to that, right? And that is a source of endless joy and hope and courage and strength and persevering endurance. Sometimes I wonder if our service and our joy in the Lord falls flat because we are setting our mind on earthly things more than we care to admit. We forget that we're citizens of God's kingdom. We get overwhelmed with the politics of this world. We, we, we spend so much time watching newsreel TV and reading news, uh, news reports, and we get overwhelmed with this world is awful and horrible, and there's plenty that's awful and horrible in this world, but we lose sight of the glory, of the glimmer that we are citizens of heaven. Jesus is coming and bringing with him a new heaven and earth. And we can serve in the joy of that. We can suffer with confidence and persevere in faith. It gives our life eternal purpose and meaning, too, by the way. We're not just going through the motions. It doesn't matter. It's all vanity of vanities. That's the experience of those that don't look forward to the return of Christ. But we as Christians, even the most mundane of things, whether you eat or drink, Paul says of the church in Corinth, do all to the what? The glory of God. So we as Christians have even the most mundane of things infused and full of eternal purposes and meaning because our King will return. Paul lists the second privilege of being a heavenly citizen. He wants to ensure that, that we will say, hey, we want to be able to enjoy this new heaven and earth, right? We're passport holders as citizens of the kingdom of God, but man, we're falling apart down here. In verse 21, he says this, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Man, there's so much encouragement there. I mean, just think of how much temptation you've experienced in life over the last week because of we just live in, 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 in an earthly, fleshly world with an eternal traitor that draws our hearts away from God. We're falling apart. We get sick. 
we lack health, we get discouraged, we get overwhelmed, right? You get a headache and you, 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 you know, you're shouting at the dog or you're shouting at your kid. Why? Because you got a headache and you're not feeling well and you're like, man, this body is betraying me. Friends, he, he's pointing to this, that we will trans, God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, which, by the way, the enemies of the cross are the ones that abuse the appetites of the body in this earth, in this world. And Paul is saying, you're citizens of a new kingdom, heaven, and you're going to have a new body to enjoy new joys. He says elsewhere that the joys that are coming, can't, the sorrows that we experience now can't be compared to the joys that God has stored up for us. How will we experience those joys? We need new bodies. It's almost as if the joys and the, the delights and the glories of this heavenly kingdom that we will one day be ushered into when Jesus returns are so, would so overwhelm this physical form, we come undone. And God needs to give us new bodies, glorified bodies. The body that is like he gave, that's been given to Christ, right? The, first, the, the second Adam, the last Adam. That, that's what he's been given. So I'm going to read a section from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul goes into this transformation of, of earthly, of dust, to this new glorious. And I want, I'm reading this just so that we get a little excited about and when you look in the mirror right now, it doesn't really excite you, does it? And, and the longer you look in the mirror, you know, year after year, the less exciting it, begin, it gets, right? And um, I don't know anything about that. But, uh, but friends, as Christians, right, citizenship in heaven, latch on to the hope that is ours, the spiritual blessings in Christ. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And this is what he's referring to when Christ returns and he gives us new bodies. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, earthly bodies. It is raised in glory, new body. It is sown in weakness, earthly. It is raised in power, new. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He wants Christians to understand this is doctrinal fact. This is something we look forward to as citizens of heaven, the politics of heaven. Down to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Sleep meaning die. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Why? So that we can enjoy God forever the way he designed us to enjoy him. That's the politics of heaven. Now, friends, I want you to imagine if this is the mindset that preoccupied us. If this is where we lived in understanding our status as, as a person, as an identity. Not the politics of earth, but the politics of heaven. What kind of generous spirits might we have towards others that don't have this hope? How might we interact with one another? How might we encourage one another? How might we be strengthened in our service of Christ's church? What type of endless joy might we discover when things aren't the way that we quite want them in this world, but it's okay. We don't have to live in the fear of missing out. We have something so much better as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's like we don't have to travel everywhere in this world to see it all. 
you're going to have all eternity to enjoy this new heaven and new earth. Right? It's all good. All eternity. So then, death can't stand against us because our king returns and he brings with us this new glorious body. So then, chapter 4, verse 1, here's where he sums it up. Therefore, my beloved, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. You, you consider yourself that? Joy and crown. We as God's people, he is making something glorious. We are God's workmanship. There's a glory and a crown in that. Were there problems in the church in Philippi? You betcha. I mean, he's telling them over and over again, unity, unity, unity. Work together. Love each other. Be of the same mind. He's going to call specific people out in chapter 4. Those people need to get along. There were problems in the church in Philippi, and yet he says here, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Friends, when we recognize we're citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of heaven, there's a glory. I was trying to think of a good illustration to summarize it from C.S. Lewis, like Narnia, you know, and how you've got those kids in there. They're kings and queens of Narnia, and yet they're just kids, you know, in this earthly realm. But over there in that Narnia realm, they're kings and queens, and they have the, the royalty and all of that. But I'll just let your imagination run with that this afternoon, okay? Play with that. But there's this, this joy and crown and glory. But then what does he say? There should flow out of their life as a result of that. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. And that's the risk. You see, if we don't have this mind, if we forget that we're citizens of heaven, we will find it very difficult to stand firm. We'll try to stand firm on, on American politics. We'll try to make that our status, our claim, our pride, our, 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 our rallying call. No, no, we're Christians. We live in accordance to the politics of heaven, primarily. Stand firm. This sounds very similar to how Paul summarized the section to the church in Corinth. I read that longer section about earthly and dust and spiritual. and, and, and Remember that? I just read that. Well, how does he conclude that section when he writes to the church in Corinth about this doctrine of this new body that we will be given when Jesus returns and how we'll be changed and transformed and prepared by God to enjoy him forever? He summarizes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Boy, they sound similar, don't they? I'll ask the music team to come up and get ready to, to lead us in a song. Church family, all of this doctrine is not just for our heads to, to, to hold on to and for us just to walk out and say, oh, interesting. It's meant to encourage and strengthen our glad service of Christ. And so I would love to invite us this week to pursue a conscious awareness of the politics of heaven. Read through some of the gospel accounts this week. Review the legal status that you've been given by God in Christ because of his righteousness, of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Consider that. Pray about that. Ask God to shape your heart and to excite you about that, to restore the joy of your salvation of who you are as a citizen of heaven.